This is Mental, the podcast to destigmatize mental health. I'm Bobby Temps. I'm Danny Hogan. Each Thursday, we delve into a factor or condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. With special guests and stats you can trust, here we go. This week, we're talking all about PTSD with Monia Chisky. And to start off, we've got a definition from the NHS. So post-traumatic stress disorder, also known as PTSD, is an anxiety disorder caused by very stressful, frightening or distressing events. So we found it a little bit tricky actually finding a great definition for it because many that we found outside of the NHS had a kind of bias from they were describing perhaps a type of PTSD or PTSD within the context of certain causes. Mm-hmm. This has been an illness we've actually wanted to cover for really since the start of the podcast, and we found it really difficult to find an ideal guest for it, partly because of the nature of the condition, that depending where people are in their recovery, it may make them worse, it may not be appropriate for them to be talking about what happened to them because of this reliving of the traumatic event that is a big part of PTSD. You're absolutely right in what you said. You know, the trauma part of it is really specific, isn't it? Whether that be physical or psychological. Absolutely, that there's key elements of the condition, even if the causes can be incredibly broad. Mm. That's something that similarly the NHS have highlighted in types of events that can lead to PTSD, as including serious accidents, physical or sexual assault, abuse, including childhood or domestic abuse, exposure to traumatic events at work, including remote exposure, serious health problems, such as being admitted to intensive care, childbirth experiences, such as losing a baby, war and conflict, torture. So I found it interesting with that list, the way they've structured it, it's really thorough, including some examples, but also what may surprise many people is they've put war and conflict one from the bottom. And so often PTSD can be stereotyped as the condition for veterans. Yeah. Which in in many cases is true. And that group of people, those that have served in armed forces, do have PTSD in a really high level. However, it's kind of reductive on two sides. One, that whilst it's really common within that group, that's actually the minority in terms of everyone that has PTSD It's not one of the main causes. There are far more common causes for the general population. But also, it can neglect other conditions, those that have served experience as well. There can be a lot of anxiety because of experiences that they've had. There can be depression because of how drastically different the environment they're in while serving is compared to coming back to civilian life and how difficult that can be adjusted. There's so many other conditions that can affect people Mm. that that kind of stereotyping, I don't think, helps anyone. No, and I wonder where that comes from. I wonder why we, as PTSD, is talked about more with veterans or people that have been to war. I guess in a way it's maybe easy, perhaps even comfortable way of explaining it. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to really win anyone over on that of course people that have seen war and conflict will have trauma because of that yeah but of that course, is traumatic of <laughs> course women who lose babies at birth 
but we don't actually talk about PTSD really in that way with those women, you know, it's like, loss and it's grieving and all that. But actually, you know, the most, and also you could argue that those going to war, you know, may be somewhat prepared for what might happen to them at war, may have a certain makeup that allowed them to even think about going to war in the first place, you know? doesn't take away anything that the trauma of what people that do go to war and that are in the army doesn't take anything away from those people but actually you know is there an argument they're potentially slightly more prepared for what they might be exposed to? Yeah I hear what you're saying and certainly in terms of the armed forces in this country I know a bit more about and the recognition of how this condition affects people is so much more nowadays so there is that psychological prep built into the training there's also compulsory debriefing Mm. on returning from Mm -hmm. service and so there are a lot more things in place because of how this condition affects people however you're also right in mentioning other examples and other conditions because this is part of a broader conversation far too often certain mental illnesses can be stereotyped to a certain type of people or a certain type of experience or background Mm. as the causes and in doing so it can make it harder for people that don't see themselves in that yeah to seek help and that's something that I'm really passionate about from first-hand experience 100% if eating disorders didn't have the kind of stereotyping they do as being only a female set of conditions I would have got help sooner I would have recognised that I had one sooner. But I didn't see myself reflected in those conditions. And that's the same I'm talking about with PTSD. There may be times when that's misdiagnosed for the same reason, that you seem to fit the profile of the stereotype, therefore it must be this. Absolutely. But there is no, it must be this. It's this if that's your diagnosis and that's what the symptoms you have are. There's not a a kind of quota. There should never be a quota where, because of demographics that you fit, you are given a certain diagnosis resulting in that. And I've and I've heard that, you know, that's not my own just pontification. That's something we've heard here on the podcast. We've spoken to guests where they've been diagnosed with something and they see later on that it was a misdiagnosis because they didn't seem to fit the caricature Mm. on who that should be, or particularly around gendering. I think that's a real concern of mine. And that's why we work very hard at the podcast to get different gender perspectives on a whole range of conditions. So we just wanted to talk through that briefly in, in order to set the scene for this condition, why it's so important that we cover it, why we're so delighted that our guests for today was able to come at it in such a broad way. What happened to her was very specific and luckily isn't a trauma that the vast, vast majority of us will ever go through, in this country at least. However, she does a brilliant job of drawing out, through talking about her specific experiences, the common symptoms that all, if not most, PTSD sufferers experience. And it was really fascinating to have that conversation with her yeah she was amazing we were both really moved weren't we I think you've just put it really well because one of the things that she does say without ruining it for our listeners is that 
she felt, you know, I'm all right because I haven't been physically injured. I'm, I'm, I'm not hurt. Am I hurt? No, I'm not hurt. Which, you know, after that list that you read of the people and the common experiences that people have that can potentially develop PTSD, go through, a lot of that, when it comes to the psychological stuff, feel like, well, I've been in that situation, but I'm all right. And so I'm not one of those people that needs treating, which is probably what happened to a lot of people from our armed forces, you know, before we spoke more openly about this. And she said, and then suddenly I realised, no, I'm not. I am injured, but just in my mind, not my, not my body. And that really touched me. I thought that was a really good way to describe those feelings of actually even for herself. I'm fine. I'm, I'm OK. I'm not injured, but I am. And that encompasses PTSD, doesn't it, in in its entirety then. Right, for sure. Because it's that same stereotyping that she didn't believe at the time she fitted a part of what leads to PTSD. Yeah. And therefore, she can't possibly have it. And that is, you know, not only stigmatising in general, but that can cause a lot of self-stigma when we don't understand conditions enough or when we're presented them in only very narrow ways, then it can lead to denial, it can lead to misunderstanding and a lot of delays to the treatment people so need. And another thing we really wanted to highlight introducing this is how common PTSD is. It's often not mentioned when we talk about common mental illnesses and yet it's so prevalent. Yeah. So the first stat is from the American Psychological Association. Monia, our guest today, is based in Boston, America. An estimated one in 11 people will be diagnosed with PTSD in their lifetime. Women are twice as likely as men to have PTSD. Wow. And again, there's potentially, we think of people serving in armed forces. The majority of them are men. And the majority of them are men. And I think a lot of people, you know, they they visualise that and they don't think of a woman in the uniform. You know, they think of a group of soldiers, it's still a group of men. Yeah. So even within that, there's something that straight away breaks the stereotype. Yeah. For the UK, from the NHS again, we've got that PTSD is estimated to affect one in every three people who have had a traumatic experience. And the last stat from PTSD UK is another cause of this condition that is often overlooked. They found that studies have shown upwards of 40% of refugees and as many as 90% of refugee children suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm glad you brought that stat up about refugees because when we were researching it, it really, I felt so strongly about, about that and what children are going through day to day, you know, people that are, are facing so much violence and isolation and the loss of parents and loved ones on these journeys and all this, you know, all the stuff that we see in the news and have done for the last couple of years is absolutely traumatic. And it's only down to a few charities that may be there to help those that maybe find them. So many that are just lost in the wilderness that are living with this. And it's tormenting, actually, PTSD to a lot of people, really tormenting reoccurring nightmares, reoccurring dreams, sweating, all the symptoms that come with it, you know, it really does touch me. And especially even working with young incarcerated people, people that are involved in crime, young people, boys and girls that are traumatised daily, weekly, in prison, out of prison, and that there's not really that help. It's not even recognised in that group. Sorry, it's just a bit personal. There's just a few personal stories that have come up for me probably. So it's just, I think, throw me a little bit. 
no, that's okay. Don't worry. That's that's real. And we should always apply this to our personal experiences, you know, for us to separate it and treat mental illness like it's this far away thing that doesn't apply to people we know or ourselves would be to create stigma mm-hmm. <laughs> to do the exact opposite yeah. that we're meant to do in the show. And I appreciate you sharing that. And those are really great points. I think a lot of that comes back to this being an underreported condition as almost a symptom of the condition. That when you are living with something that talking about it can bring back flashbacks, can create an intense emotional, even physical response as if you're back at the scene of the trauma. Of course, it's going to be underreported. You can be scared to get help. You can be worried about speaking about it. You may be actively avoiding Mm. topics, even vaguely related to experiences you've had, 100%. And that's that's fine. You know, that's completely understandable self-preservation. But that doesn't mean that people don't need the support and that the need isn't out there. Just we don't always see it and it's not always acknowledged that it's PTSD. So often it can be explained away with other conditions, sometimes ones that feel easier or safer. And that that affects everyone. You know, we started off by talking at the, the top of the intro about how it was difficult to find a guest that's right for this. Yeah. And that was in part because of the nature of the condition. Yeah. We never want to put somebody in an environment that could make them worse. And that was something we were very conscious of. Yeah. And that's something you'll really understand when we get into the interview today. The nature of what happened to Monia, what she lived through. And we won't say too much about it, but she was witness to a terror attack at very close proximity. And so whilst we don't get into some of the elements of that, some of the things that she saw that that most haunted her, the way she describes it, I think is very much a reflection of what this condition is like, that those memories are still crystal clear. And listening to her story was fascinating because I could imagine every part of it. It was like hearing the detail you'd go into in a novel. Yeah. That we don't always hear from some of our guests. And... Yeah, she was perfect because she did tell her story really well. Not only was it heartfelt, but, it you know, the listeners, I'm sure, will agree when they listen. You felt right there with her. Right. Um, well, it's thoroughly human. Even if you haven't experienced this condition, you will understand why and how it affected her listening to this. So with that all said, we will get into the interview in a moment. But first... Who's our sponsor? Let's find out. I love learning, particularly when it's approached in new ways, so I'm delighted to be partnering with The Great Courses Plus. With their streaming service, you can learn about virtually any topic with lectures from engaging experts. So it's like a TED Talk? Well, maybe even better. With in-depth insights through The Great Courses Plus website or app, you get unlimited access to thousands of courses in video or audio formats. For example, I'm currently working through the course Building Your Resilience, Finding Meaning in Adversity. Resilience is key to our well-being, and these classes go into even more depth than we do on the podcast, 
covering so many ways to build resilience, including self-care, stress management, mindfulness, and CBT techniques. I'd really recommend joining me in taking this course or any other from the Great Courses Plus. And we have a special listener offer, which is 50% off if you sign up for a three-month plan. You just have to use our link, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash health. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash health. You can also find that link in the episode description. Please support them as they support us and do let us know how you get on. Hi, I'm Manya Chilinski, and I'm a writer and advocate for people who experience trauma after violence. That comes from my experience as a witness to the Boston Marathon bombing. It was April 15th, 2013, and I was lucky enough to have seats in the bleacher seats right at the finish line and what turned out to be directly across from the first bomb that exploded. I was not physically injured. It was later that I realized I had actually been injured. Um, My mental health had been affected. In the moment of the bombing, I was absolutely frozen in place. I knew it was a bomb. Not everybody thought that immediately, but for some reason I did. And was just frozen and wasn't having very many coherent thoughts in my head. And as my brain was trying to figure out what was happening, I was staring straight across the street at the first bombing site and trying to figure out what was happening with the people there. And then the second bomb went off and I turned to my left to look down the street and saw the smoke from that bomb and realized we were in real trouble and thought to myself, we have to get out of here. And it turns out I said that to my friend who was next to me. And we evacuated the bleachers, which unfortunately you had to walk down the stairs, which actually took us closer to the bombing site. And then we you know, exited the area and I got around the corner from where we were and realized that my friends and I had gotten separated and just was sobbing, the first of many, many tears after this event, and sort of walked away just with the thought of, well, thank heavens, I'm okay, I wasn't hurt. And it was only later that I realized, you know, I had been hurt, just not physically in a way that people could see. Thank you for sharing that. With it being such an experience that luckily many people never go through, thank God. Do you mind sharing what, in the immediate aftermath of bombs like that, what the kind of environment is like, what you were hearing, what you were seeing? As I was standing there in in the, the moment the first bomb went off, I didn't hear anything after the bomb. To me, the entire scene was silent. I was watching it and... You know, all of my senses except vision were gone. Couldn't feel anything, um, hear anything. I heard the second bomb, but again, after that, everything was silent. Other than one of the marathon volunteers 
saying to us as we exited, you know, sort of go to the right, get out of here, encouraging us to, you know, keep moving. Mm -hmm. And then when I got around the corner and I stopped and realized I was crying, then I could hear the world around me. So I had the opportunity to see videos from that day. And the most surprising thing to me is how loud everything is. The people talking, the, you know, yelling, the screaming, probably sirens or probably helicopters as well. And I just don't remember hearing any of it. My brain just shut that all out until we got away. And then my friends and I regrouped a few blocks away. And then it was as if I was hearing too much. People were, you know, you could hear yelling. People were talking. Everybody was trying to figure out what was happening. So there was a lot of confusion. And my friends and I had, I guess, the benefit of having seen the bombs go off and knowing that they were bombs. As we got a few blocks away, we started to be surrounded by people who knew something was happening and had seen people running away and maybe had heard the bombs but not seen them. And they just had this extra level of confusion because they didn't know what was happening. And we ended up answering a lot of questions for people, where we had been, where the bomb was in relation to the finish line. Uh, we were running into a lot of family members who were worried about their family running. You know, my wife had just passed the finish line and then I heard the bombs. Do you think she's okay? We were answering questions like that to the best of our ability. That's fascinating. So that's where you were right there when it happened. How was the next few days for you? The next few days were horrible. Pretty quickly after it happened, they shut down the streets and the police blocked them off. And so we actually, all of us lived on the other side of the course from where we were watching. So we had to make our way around the crime scene and we watched, we watched ambulances taking people to hospitals and we were, you know, had to sort of walk past crowds of police officers blocking people and got home. And one of the first things that I did was turn on the television to see the news, to see what just happened. Do they know who did this? Has anybody been killed? What what just happened? And unfortunately, I watched a lot of news over the next few days. In the immediate aftermath, they quite often don't know anything. So just watching it over and over again isn't particularly helpful. But I kept watching it over. For one thing, to find out if they had figured out who did this, that seemed really important in the moment to know who had made this happen. I don't know if I felt that knowing what happened would make a difference to how I felt and to my mental health, but it seemed really important. The other thing I kept watching the news for was to hear stories about people like me. I wanted to hear that other witnesses who had been lucky enough not to be physically injured were also feeling the same level of distress that I was feeling. You know, I wasn't able to sleep very well. I wasn't eating very much, and I wasn't making very good choices in what I ate. I was really struggling with working. I work for myself, so there's not a lot of 
leeway if Mm -hmm. I can't do what I am supposed to do. And I had one day, it was the next day, actually, I was in a conference call for work. Everybody on the call lived in the Boston area, but not a single person brought up the bombing. And since it was the only thing on my mind, that was very disconcerting as if they were pretending it didn't happen. But there are many reasons, I'm sure, that it didn't come up. But in the middle of the conversation, I suddenly smelled the bomb. And I would not have been able to tell you before that that I had smelled it. But I had. I just didn't remember it. And I'm sitting there at my computer on this call, and I smell the bomb, and Every fiber of my being is back on Boylston Street experiencing the bombing again. And I'm waiting for the catastrophe that's about to befall me here in my office. Something clicks in my mind and I look out the door of my office and realize, well, I don't see any flames or smoke and I don't hear any sirens. So probably there isn't another bomb. Because those things would definitely happen if there was another bomb. The end of the day, I realized why I kept smelling the bomb that entire day for reasons I will never be able to understand. I put on the exact same clothes I had been wearing the day before. So my pants were permeated with the smell of the bomb, whatever sweater it was I had on. So I was smelling the bomb. So it wasn't in my imagination. I just was smelling it on my body. As soon as I figured that out, I took off the pants. And and it wasn't for a few months before I actually just got rid of them. (laughs) And over those next few days, just experienced things like that off and on. The Friday after the bombing, so five days later, there was a manhunt and they captured the perpetrators. In the evening, I started hearing people cheering outside. And I felt like, oh, they must have, they must have caught the people and turned on the news. And sure enough, they had. And my neighbors and I, we ended up walking to Boston Common and there were a lot of police officers there. We all started hugging them to just say thank you for the work that you did. What's so funny is uh, police officers really don't want you to touch them when they're (laughs) in uniform and they have their gun. And They're all very uncomfortable with the public just walking up and giving them a hug. And my friend asked one of them, how does it feel that everybody's wanting to give you a hug? And he said, now I know what firefighters must feel like. (laughs) And we'll just pause there for a moment because there's so much mentioned already. Particularly, I think you've highlighted one of the intense complexities of PTSD in how you were constantly watching the news and really focused on this traumatic event. And I think that's a big part of how ill-prepared we are as humans to deal with certain types of trauma and why conditions like PTSD come up as a way of us somehow dealing with that. So from the outside looking in, people may wonder why you were watching so much news and why you were so focused on the people being caught But to me, it makes so much sense that you were desperately trying to rationalize it, that this horrible thing had happened that you never thought you'd be a part of, and you just come back to your normal life. And people around you 
at times aren't even acknowledging it, and yet it's all you can think of. So of course you're going to go to the the news sites, you'll want to be around police, you'll want people to be acknowledging this crazy thing that you're desperately trying to figure out. I think the downside to a lot of that is that can also create more problems because unknowingly you're fixating on the trauma and you're going through it, reliving it, trying to figure it out. And hence why PTSD can get so ingrained within us. One of the most surreal things about the situation, and let me be clear, it's entirely surreal, (laughs) but one of the most surreal pieces was watching TV, watching CNN, and suddenly seeing myself in one of the videos that they showed. And... You know, that wasn't really how I wanted to make my debut on CNN. (laughs) And my mom called later that day to ask me what I was wearing because she had seen CNN and saw me and wanted to confirm that that was me. Just, as I said, so surreal. Right, because you're still trying to figure out this thing that happened. I can see how it didn't even feel real at that point. You know, how can you go through something like that and then just go home? It just feels entirely inappropriate for the magnitude of what you survived. It does. And I can tell you that there are days still, almost seven years later, where it doesn't feel like it really happened to me. Mm. I think, of course this didn't really happen. Of course a bomb didn't go off on this street right here. I haven't been able to shake that feeling of every once in a while just, I can't believe it happened and I can't believe I was there. I can't believe how it changed my life. Yeah. And it is going to be one of those things I'd imagine that will always be baffling. You know, something like this should never happen. We're brought up in a world with concepts of right and wrong and that certain things are unacceptable and should never exist. And this is such an example. So to to go through it is to have to question your whole morality, your whole viewpoint on what you think is right and wrong and possible. And I can imagine how unsettling and destabilizing that must have felt. Yes, destabilizing is a good word for for it. Early on in the in that first week, even though I reached out for a therapist and for mental health support, so there was still part of me that thought intellectually that felt like this wasn't a big deal it was something I could walk away from and sure I witnessed people being murdered but I wasn't right next to them and I didn't actually see those individuals in the moment so I would be fine and I just need to go to therapy for a couple weeks to kind of figure out what happened and get myself over it and I don't think Looking at it now, I realize that wasn't going to happen. That was never going to happen. For me, the event just triggered a bunch of stuff in my brain, stuff that had not maybe been worked through and needed to be worked through. And I didn't feel that I had the public support that I was looking for. The mayor didn't talk about it. The police chief wasn't talking about the witnesses or the mental health side of things. Mm -hmm. 
And that was a big piece of what I was looking for. My family and friends were supportive, each in their own way. There's something about me, though, I was really looking for that public acknowledgement and that public validation that what I was experiencing was real and that I also counted as a victim of this crime. Right. And that was a that was a particular challenge in the early months, struggling with struggling with how the city was treating it, um, how the media was talking about it. And frankly, it's actually still an issue and it's still something that makes me very angry when I think about it. Mm. No, I completely understand that. And it sounds like you went through something that a lot of people go through across the board when experiencing mental illness, where it's very easy to compare ourselves and think about the things other people have gone through. And so if you have witnessed something like this, but being a witness as opposed to a physical injury victim, it can be easy to to think to yourself, that's not the same. And that, you know, I got off lightly and that I'm actually fine. And in many ways, you want that to be true. You want to be fine and okay and just identify with being a survivor like everyone's telling you you are. And then you're getting that reinforced in the media where the focus is so much on the number of deaths and number of injuries. And that's perfectly rational. But I can see how you know, that just drew out that coming to terms process for you, that there was no one there validating your experience, that there are also these victims that we're going to acknowledge that need help for the injuries you cannot see. Yes. In the summer after, there was a support group for people who had been at the finish line, and that was the description. They weren't saying you had to have physical injuries, you couldn't have physical injuries. It was just, if you... We're near the finish line and you think you need help. And it was with some trauma counselors. And that was validating on one level, absolutely, because now I started to meet other people who were having some of the same symptoms that I was having. And it also served to remind us that we were invisible. And we started referring to ourselves as the invisible victims. One of the people in our group had also experienced a physical injury and was in one of the support groups that included a lot of the people with the very major physical injuries. And uh, the mayor of my city attended that support group to talk to those survivors and, and whatever. He never once came to our support group, never even thought about the fact that we had a support group. Mm -hmm. And that was very painful I know for myself and from what other people in the group said, that was one more sort of hitting home, you guys don't count as victims. Because he was publicly talking about how supportive the city was going to be for everybody who was impacted, but then clearly making a division, and we were on the wrong side of that line. Yeah, that's horrible to hear, but sadly with the stigma that so often exists, I'm not massively surprised. And by contrast, how was it responded to when you contacted your doctor? Oh, my doctor was fabulous and continues to be fabulous. When I called that Monday to come in, I answered all the standard questions. I just said, oh, I'd like to come in and be seen. And they asked some of those intake questions. Are you a danger to yourself or others? 
you know, do you have insurance? I forget, but all pretty boring, basic Mm -hmm. intake questions. And I was able to answer all of them in just a regular voice. And no, I'm not a danger to myself for others. Yes, I need this. No, I don't need this. And then she said, why do you want to come in? And I could barely squeak out the words, I was at the finish line. I'm not even sure I said that very loudly. But the next thing I know, her demeanor completely changed. And by the time we hung up the phone 10 minutes later, I had an appointment for less than 24 hours later. I didn't know there was such a thing as an emergency mental health appointment. Mm -hmm. Now I do, and, and I'm very grateful for it because she realized this wasn't whatever a normal mental health appointment is. This was something that needed some emergency treatment. And, you know, my primary care doctor knows about my path and continues to just check in with me to see that I'm okay. My dermatologist, who I see a lot, is very aware of this journey and is always checking in to make sure how I'm doing. So I feel very supported from the medical community and my doctors with what I'm going through. That's so brilliant to hear. And in terms of how you responded to that support, when was PTSD first mentioned? Was that a, a, and to what degree were you comfortable with that diagnosis? I didn't find out that diagnosis until about a, a year later or nine months later. I had never asked when I was in either talk therapy or trauma counseling, those were two separate paths, but I never really said what actually is happening to me and is there a diagnosis. I was very passive in that way. I was just kind of riding the wave. And if you would see me and talk to me about it, I was going to talk to you about it. And it wasn't until later when I needed to get some paperwork and figure a few things out that I saw the diagnosis and the paperwork and the discussion from my therapist about what I was going through. And so I got that news sitting alone on my couch, reading a piece of paper. And it was a shocking because I hadn't thought what I was going through had risen to that level of, of disability or, or, or disease or however you describe it. And also, as I was reading it, it just didn't seem like it was me. I just thought I was reading about this third party and how sad her life was and these horrible things that had happened to her. And it was very difficult, again, to connect that experience that that I had been having a few months before with it really being me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And for many people, it it does take years, even a lifetime, or not at all, to come to terms with all the ways that an experience like that can affect you. Yes, and I talk about it differently all the time. Sometimes I will say that I've had PTSD. Sometimes I will just say PTS or post-traumatic stress. I won't sort of add the D Mm -hmm. or disorder. Sometimes I won't even really classify it that way. And 
I think that varies based on how comfortable I am with the diagnosis in my own head at the moment. And have you found you've gone through a kind of process in that way of becoming comfortable with the diagnosis? Yes. And part of that is the healing from the PTSD. And part of that is also that I speak about this. So I go to conferences and events and talk to first responders and emergency managers. And I talk about my experience with the goal of helping people understand how important it is to help people like me after mass violence and to just not ignore the witnesses who were there who walked away without physical injuries. And that has been a very healing process. It helps me work through how I feel about my PTSD. And there are days when I'm presenting and I feel like there's a little voice in my ear that says, why are you even talking to these people? Nothing happened to you. And then there are other days where I'm up there and I, I feel it. It's all integrated. I feel like one person and it's a, it's this true story about myself. So it's, it can go back and forth even at times like that. But that has really helped me process it. And the number of people who come up to me after those events and share their experiences with me and give me their thoughts about having PTSD is really helpful. One time I said that I don't go to the marathon anymore. I don't and I'm not going to. But in this talk, I said... I want to want to go back to the marathon because it used to be such a big part of my life. But I don't want to go back. But I feel like I want that part of my life back. Mm -hmm. So that was just a line in my talk. And afterwards, this man came up to me and was sharing his story with me. And he said, you don't ever have to want to go back. And just saying it now, it sounds so obvious, but it meant the world to me that he said that. And I realized, yeah, I don't want to go back and I don't care about that. And that's the kind of input that I'm getting at these talks and from other people who've experienced PTSD from all a variety of events. And, and that is really helpful to my healing too, hearing from other people like that and getting that kind of encouragement from somebody who has gone through his own journey of PTSD. Right. That's so powerful. And it's something that I think is incredibly necessary with a condition like this, that you've described there how at times it's made you feel very disconnected from yourself. And that is a very real and very common symptom. But by hearing about other people's experiences, it can be sometimes easier to see that in others. And then you learn how to to not lose yourself, because really that's a uh, it's a symptom, but it's also part of, in a way, your mind protecting you, that sometimes you need to be distanced from certain parts of what you've been through just to cope. But when you've been through any number of things that can cause PTSD, those things are such a big part of who you are now that I, I, I strongly believe eventually you do need to kind of come around and find where they live inside you. Yes. I completely agree with that. And I have seen my own journey of how my brain kind of accepts and will 
take little pieces of it to accept at a time rather than kind of taking the whole thing. Even all the way back to the moment that it happened, after the second bomb went off, I was in bleacher seats. So to evacuate, we were going to have to walk downstairs or step over the steps or the seats. And I looked straight down at my feet and I never looked back up until I got to a place where I couldn't see the bombing site. So even though we were exiting, took us closer to the bombing site, I never looked back across the street. And I am convinced that that was a protective measure by my brain, just knowing we don't need to see any more of this. And I feel like I, I'm now able to recognize those kind of instances when my brain is just saying, we need to protect you right now, we're not going to do this. Right. That's fascinating. And it makes a lot of sense because we do have these kind of instincts that can kick in that we need to be protected from. Because if you've never been through something like this, you'll still know what people are like to an extent around emergency. You see an ambulance and people instinctively look over to see what's happening. And that, you know, that's our curiosity. We're trying to figure out what's going on. But it's fascinating to hear that even in that that moment of terror, you you were still subconsciously taking steps to protect yourself, even from your own instincts. And since then, with all the work I've done with therapists and trauma counselors, and I've done a lot of mindfulness training, I've learned techniques to take myself out of a situation mentally if I need to. Mm-hmm. I I have things that I can say to myself and my brain has gotten pretty good at kind of knowing when uh, we need to stop and we're just going to switch. But I also have tools now that I can implement if I know that I need to and it hasn't managed to kind of shut itself off on its own. And that's been fascinating to learn that level of control I guess, of what I'm, I'm thinking. Even things that I know I can't control, I can control how I'm responding to it. For sure. And that's really the key with mindfulness or meditation, that ability to step back to a degree, to get that third-party perspective when you're in situations you'd otherwise feel overwhelmed and even somewhat blinded by. And what other tools have you found most helpful? The mindfulness and meditation has been a really big key. The therapy also was a key, seeing the trauma counselors in particular, because they were able to help me understand what the what was happening in my brain because of the trauma and what was trauma-specific and how it impacts people in general so I could understand how it was impacting me. I also did EMDR eye movement, desensitization, Mm -hmm. and reprocessing. I did that about three years later. I'd heard of it earlier and dismissed it for I don't know what reason. When I went through it, it was incredibly difficult, emotionally difficult. And I would come home from sessions and go straight to bed and sleep for the whole afternoon. So I learned after the first couple to not schedule any work meetings in days that I had EMDR treatments. 
they really helped me be able to think about the bombing as, I guess, a regular memory. So kind of strip the emotion from it so I can think about it and I can tell you about my experience without my body kind of taking myself back into that emotional experience and the freeze or fight or flight. And that was huge to be able to get that distance to decouple the emotion from it. It doesn't mean I don't still have emotions sometimes when I think about it, but I'm really able to not be sideswiped by suddenly thinking about it or by walking by the site or anything like that. I'm able to just, you know, I can talk about it kind of the same way that I could tell you I was doing my laundry yesterday, can have that same level of emotional connection. That's really wonderful to hear. And coincidentally, that's actually something we talk about a lot more in our next episode is uh, EMDR. So that's uh, worked out well. But no, I'm delighted to hear that it's helped you in that way. And it sounds like it's really giving you a lot more control in these stressful situations when things are potentially triggering to you. Yes. And I've had instances of being re-triggered completely out of the blue for example, I like fireworks. Mm-hmm. I can go to a fireworks show. If I can see the fireworks, I'm fine. If I can't see the fireworks or I don't know there's about to be a fireworks show and suddenly I hear them, no surprise. I've been through a bombing. It sounds like a bomb going off. And we had an instance here in Boston a couple years ago, I think, where there was a fireworks show not at the a regular time. I think it was maybe in May. So I didn't know it was coming, but I could hear it from my living room. And I was completely triggered and was running around my apartment trying to decide if I should put my shoes on and run outside or if I should stay inside because I was convinced that it was a series of bombs going off and I was going mm-hmm. to die But would it be safer to be out in the open versus, you know, a sitting duck in my living room? And the result was that I ran back and forth between my closet and my front door multiple times. And at some point texted a friend who quickly realized what was happening and texted right back and said, it's a fireworks show. This is what's happening. And you're okay. And do you need me to come over? So was able to, you know, realize what was happening. It took quite a while to still sort of come down from being triggered. Of course. That was, you know, I was just sitting there on my Saturday night watching TV and then boom, I was right in the middle of it. And it's early on, it was very difficult for me to accept that sort of random trigger that didn't mean I was getting worse. It just meant I was triggered in this moment. And now we need to work through it and move on. Right, absolutely. And what a lovely friend you had that he knew straight away what was going on and what to do. Yes, he's very valuable and, in fact, has done that in a number of cases. Even on things that I'm not particularly triggered about, he has proactively emailed me or texted me to say, hey, this is going to happen later or 
I know you heard the siren just stop outside of our house. This is what's happening. Everything's okay. So he's a quite wonderful friend. Absolutely. So we are unfortunately running out of time. So I just wanted to finish up with kind of rounding up from where we started with. We talked a fair bit about what it was like in the aftermath, the the few days afterwards, and how you work to cope in that in that initial time period. How do you find PTSD affects your life now with the coping mechanisms and the work that you've done? Today, I feel so much better. I no longer say I have PTSD. I will say I had it. And I've essentially recovered. There are still the occasional trigger. And I am dealing with some chronic pain issues as a result of my PTSD. So it's ongoing work. And mindfulness remains a large part of that. And physical activity is a large part of that as well. That helps me both physically and mentally. And the education work that I'm doing with my speaking is also helping me heal. So I feel like I'm in a really good place and I can deal with when I have a trigger. I, I get it. I understand it's not necessarily a setback. And I feel positive about where I am in my healing. You really are such a wonderful example and an inspirational person where you've gone through all that you've been through and found ways to prioritize your healing. And not only have you clearly done so much work in your recovery and worked really hard at that, but in doing so, you found ways to inspire others. And of course, running a podcast like that, it just makes my heart sing to hear about stories like yours. Oh, thank you. That means a lot coming from you. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much for being on the podcast. If people want to find out more about you, where should they go online? They can go to my website, which is manyachilinski.com, and find me on Twitter. That's where I spend the most time on social media, and that's also Manya Chilinski. Right now, I'm sharing stories of other survivors of trauma with a hashtag called 100 Days of Trauma. Wow, brilliant. Thank you again so much for chatting to me today. Thank you so much. (laughs) I had a great time. Thank you for listening. For a list of our recommended resources, visit mentalpodcast.co.uk. And remember, we are in no way a substitute for qualified counselling or other mental health support. Our show is edited and produced by the brilliant Pete Murta with licensed music by NetSky. Links in the description. Speak to you next Thursday. And remember, you are enough.